This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This is the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. When we tell the story of the first Thanksgiving, our teachers tell us the dinner with the pilgrims and Native Americans was such a wonderful, peaceful thing. And sometimes they also call the pilgrims Puritans. But were they exactly the same thing, especially at that time? Well, apparently not. And that is a part of this story as well. To help us figure it out is Abram Van Engen, professor of English, as well as religion and politics at Washington University in St. Louis, who has written and lectured a good deal about the Puritans of the 1600s. Good to have you with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I love that you got into a deep dive into Puritans because the teacher said you should look into them because they're not crazy and neurotic to you. <laughs> so, yes, that's how it all started. <laughs> so are they crazy and neurotic to most historians? And how do you account for your sympathy with them? I mean, they, everyone makes sense in their own context, right? <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that they they have been presented a certain way across time that is is not always fair to them. Um, but, you know, they did have pretty strong religious principles, which in many of which are not really in play today. And so that people find that a little foreign and a little strange and sometimes a little neurotic. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get into some of the reasons for that. But when we do talk about pilgrims and people say Puritans, the response is, if you try to clear that up, they say, well, same thing. Who cares? What's the difference? Obviously, you care. So let's get into the difference. And let's start with who are the Puritans? So one of the great questions to ask of any scholar of Puritanism is who is the Puritans? Because everybody disagrees and fights over it. And it's, it's usually the first chunk of a book about the Puritans. Who were they? Who are we talking about? But basically, the Puritans were people who wanted to reform the Church of England. And the key difference between the Puritans broadly conceived as people who wanted to reform the Church of England and the pilgrims who came with the, the Mayflower and all that is the pilgrims said the Church of England is beyond reform. It's it's irreparable uh, and therefore they separated from it. So we, we sometimes talk about this difference between the separatists and the Puritans. 
Um, and the Puritans basically wanted to keep saying, we have not separated from the Church of England, which is a treasonous move at the time. We just want to reform it. So there were, what, 102 pilgrims that came over on the Mayflower. There were a 1,000 Puritans who come to Boston later. And, you know, we think of Plymouth and Boston these days as the same area. But back then, it wasn't getting on an interstate and going from one town to the other. Unlike the pilgrims, the Puritans, despite their disagreements with the Church of England, had an official charter from the King of England to establish a colony. And they had not totally separated from the Church of England. The pilgrims, I guess, were the more radical. The Puritans were, as you said, reformers within the system, at least until the end of the 1600s when they kind of get together. But the pilgrims, as I said, were more radical than the Puritans. You know, one of the things people miss is that when the the pilgrims were, in fact, sort of harried out of England, um, but that's in part because they said that, you know, the Church of England is a good way to to find yourself damned, um, which didn't go over well in England. Um, And so they fled, and, and the first place they went for for religious toleration, I say this proudly as having Dutch ancestry in my in my line, is they went to Holland because that was the place where religious toleration was really getting going and a lot of experiments were happening in the Netherlands. So when we say that they they fled England for America to find religious freedom, we sort of skipped the fact that they went to Holland first for religious freedom and, and came here mostly because they were poor <laughs> and they wanted to, to to find a way to make a living. Really? And they couldn't find that in Holland? They were massively in in poverty. And, and I love this point, too. They were worried that their kids were becoming too Dutch as they lived there and, and losing their principles and losing their way. So a group of them said, you know what, we should we should try to find another place to make this experiment happen. Um, and so, yeah. So in 1620, then then 100 of them tried to leave and, and they left. Uh, they, they sailed through England, but then they left uh for America, intending to go to Virginia, and of course, got blown off course and, and arrived in Plymouth. Quite a bit off course. And when I said, who were the Puritans? And I asked, who were the pilgrims? I'm talking in the past tense. Are either of them still with us? They're definitely descendants of the Calvinists, alive and well in America today. Uh, and plenty of congregations would describe themselves as Calvinist uh, today. And that can have a wide range of views. It can be liberal Calvinists and conservative Calvinists and everything in between. And some of them would would trace their roots back to these, these original churches um, and these original um, folks who came. So... Um, Yes, there are there are descendants of these folks uh, alive and well today. But in terms of the strict definition, well, strict, in terms of reforming the Church of England, that's not really an impulse in America today. <laughs> uh, so in that sense, I would not say the Puritans are around today. And was I right in kind of throwing off earlier that the Puritans and Pilgrims, those separate when the Pilgrims come to Plymouth and the Puritans come to Boston, Within a hundred years, they're kind of singing Kumbaya or whatever the Pilgrim Puritan version of that would be. <laughs> yeah. In the first few years, the Puritans are really insistent in sending tons of letters back that they are not separatists because that's a problem, right? They, they, you can't have the king's blessing if you're a separatist. Um, and so they're very much saying, we're not those people down in Plymouth. They are different than us. We're not them. Uh, but within 60 years or so, they just sort of uh, subsume the Plymouth colony, which is why it's part of Massachusetts uh, today. Um, yeah, but the Puritans, they, they came on with, with force. They had money. Uh, they were from the gentry or the middle class. Uh, they set up Boston and they had a very different experiment. But 
you know, what's one of the interesting things in American history is how did these two get combined into one sort of origin story? And that actually has a, has a much longer story, which I won't bore you with now. But suffice it to say that Reagan wanted to call Winthrop in Boston a pilgrim. And when he got called on it and someone said, you know, Reagan, he's not really a pilgrim. He's a Puritan. He said, oh, I know, I know. But it's all the same. You know, let's just call him a pilgrim because he came here like they did. What you did just a moment ago, you said the story was both interesting, but you wouldn't want to bore me with it because it's a long, interesting story. So can you give me a capsule version? We'll decide if it's boring or not. One of the interesting things is, of course, they are not the first English people. They're not the first people in America. That's, of course, Native Americans. They're not the first English people. That's uh, in Jamestown, the first English uh, settlement. So it's just curious why we even start with the Pilgrims and Puritans as an origin of America anyway. Uh, And that happens through the course of the 1800s when people are looking for a kind of morally pure founding to give us a kind of sense of ourselves as having a moral cause. And so they write a story around which the pilgrims come here in pursuit of freedom, both in terms of civic freedom and religious freedom. And they establish that as founding principles of America. And that's why they become the origin story. And then later, this city on a hill sermon from the Puritans who came later gets wrapped into that story. And so people want them both. They want us to be founded as a city on a hill, which happens in 1630 at best, even though that's a sermon nobody knew about at the time. And they want it to be tied to the pilgrims. But the city on a hill is the Puritans in Boston and the pilgrims came 10 years earlier with the Mayflower. Anyway, so they just sort of say, what what are the best parts about these people that we can build into a kind of origin story for the nation? And then they kind of weave a myth that blends them together. Well, you hit on something that goes into modern American politics because City on a Hill was brought back by President Ronald Reagan, as you pointed out. And I remember at a Democratic convention, I covered Mario Cuomo answering Reagan with his own City on a Hill speech. And it's interesting, you point out the City on the Hill phrase comes from Jesus. Yes. But the City on the Hill sermon that you talk about from 1630 wasn't really well known at that time. In fact, it wasn't well known for a couple of hundred years. That's right. That's right. This is what I talk about in my book, City on a Hill. I mean, this is a sermon that that John Winthrop gives, the the first governor of of Massachusetts Bay. And the No Puritan records it. It's never published. It's never taken note of. It's not a big deal. It's just gone. And then 200 years later, they find it and turn it into this origin statement of America that Winthrop said we'd be a city on a hill, and that took root, and we've been a city on a hill ever since. And really, even then, it doesn't take off until after World War II. It's really a Cold War rhetoric. And part of what I do in my book is talk about how and why that takes off in the Cold War, and then how Republicans and Democrats turn to that same sermon and that same speech and use it in different ways. I mean, Cuomo is is turning to a different part of that same speech to answer Reagan, but both are assuming that this is a foundational text when in fact it wasn't. As you pointed out, Native Americans were already here. The Spanish had been here a century. The French and the Dutch were here a little before the pilgrims. Why has the pilgrim story stuck that mythic landing? They were really essential especially, as I say, right after the American Revolution. So you think the pilgrims come in the early 1600s, the American Revolution is the late 1700s. And by the 1800s, people are are asking themselves, how do we build a nation out of 13 colonies that have been totally distinct from one another? I mean, they've had very little to do with one another until the American Revolution. And one of the answers to that is we need to build a common narrative, a common history, a common past, and we need to give it some glory. Just ahead, we'll find out more about pilgrims, Puritans, and the first Thanksgiving here on the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. 
Happy Thanksgiving. This is, as it happens, the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio, and I'm Gil Gross. We've been learning about the pilgrims from Abram Van Engen, a professor of history, politics, and religion at Washington University in St. Louis. There's a thing about my family came over on the Mayflower, which we associate probably wrongly because it's not like we know these people personally for the most part. Yeah. But we see caricatures of them in movies and television, that these are people who are very haughty, very well-to-do and all of that. And yet the pilgrims were the impoverished, poor relations at the time they came over. The Puritans were the people with money. So how did this whole thing grow? Because there's a thing about my relatives coming over in the Mayflower that makes people think that this was the beginning of Europeans becoming Americans. Roanoke had been settled and vanished 35 years before. Jamestown was settled 13 years before. Is it just their association with morality and a greater cause than coming over to farm or get beaver pelts or make money or anything like that? By the 1800s, people are, are asking themselves, how do we build a nation out of 13 colonies? We're not going to be able to do that with Jamestown. We're not going to want to start with the South because then we're going to have to talk about slavery. So let's, let's t- start with a people who we can argue came here for God, not gold, came here for principles, not just to make a buck. And we can be- begin to build a narrative about what the American Revolution was really about and why we stand together as one nation. And so you begin to see this, this output, this enormous output of historical narratives, all beginning with the pilgrims, to basically build a nation out of 13 distinct colonies. The way we speak of them and describe them today doesn't sound as if it has all that much to do with who these people were. I mean, how much of this is from reality and how much is our view of the Puritans derived from Hawthorne, who wrote about them being incredibly rigid, fun-hating people who put that A on Hester Prynne's chest. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we have from the, the sort of idea of the Puritans as, as strict and rigid and neurotic and all the rest of that, actually a lot of that is 1800s um, descendants of the Puritans trying to find a different way forward and basically producing a caricature of the Puritans so that they could build a different uh, form of religious uh, spiritual well-being. But the Puritans, you know, as, as one of the great scholars of the Puritans used to say, this is already 50 years ago, they loved to drink. They had a good time. And uh, and within the context of marriage, they, they, they were very pro-sex and everything else. And in fact, you could go to be, be taken to court if you weren't having enough of it in your marriage. But um, wait, 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 anyway, wait. Th- Let's pause right here for a moment of reflection. They could what? Well, there are a few minor cases. Again, these are a little exceptional, but basically where where people are saying, you know, my spouse is not performing the duties of marriage and, uh, and, and that's what marriage is for. And, and so there are a few public incidences of saying, you know, this is what marriage is for. And this is what, this is what should be taking place. So, the point being, uh, they they are a very complex and and wide ranging group of people, and in fact had lots of disagreements among themselves about exactly what what they should stand for and how they should stand. Um, but the idea of them as just sort of neurotic and and mean and rigid really doesn't um, doesn't hold up. But the story that we tell about pilgrims, the Puritans coming here for religious tolerance and all of that, we build this story for America, 
Now, they did want that freedom of religion, but they wanted it for themselves. They they weren't very happy with anybody else having religious freedom, right? Right. Uh, the best line I've heard about this is, look, the Puritans and the Pilgrims were both perfectly consistent, whether they were in England or here. It's not as though in England they fought for religious tolerance and then denied it here. What they fought for in England, what they fought for here, was what they thought of as the right way to do religion. And you have to understand that in the context of the 1600s, not just them, but everybody felt like a nation itself was only going to succeed if everybody in the nation had somewhat of a unified confession of right religion. And so they fought for right religion in England. They were the minority there. They were chased out. The pilgrims were. Uh, they came here to establish right religion. And in their minds, it was it was crazy that you would allow false religion to flourish. Like that was just to them, why would you do that? That that would just threaten the nation. That That doesn't make any sense. It, it was what they fought against in England, and they continued to fight against it here. It's just that they had power here, and they didn't have power in England. There's a couple of reasons why we love this story about the pilgrims coming as being the basis for America, the basis for we came here for religious freedom. This story builds mainly because of a speech on the 200th anniversary of the landing at Plymouth by Daniel Webster, somewhat forgotten today. Some of that was his own doing later in his career, but he was considered the greatest orator of his time. If you stay up late watching TCM, you might see the story of the devil and Daniel Webster based on the idea if anybody could do better oratory than the devil, it would be Daniel Webster. He can convince <laughs> anybody of anything. That's right. <laughs> and his speech has a lot to do with how we see the Pilgrim story. Yeah, no, Daniel Webster was the big order of the day. And in and what this is again part of the context of building a nation. What you get in the 1820s are a bunch of 50th anniversaries. You have 50th anniversary of Bunker Hill. Um, the first two uh, or the second and third presidents die on the same day, July 4th, uh, you know, 50 years from the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, Adams and Jefferson. Yeah, you've got all of these um, commemorations happening, and they're really launched. The decade of commemorations is launched in 1820 with the, the greatest orator of the day saying it all begins with the pilgrims 200 years ago, right here in this spot at Plymouth Rock. And that speech then is printed that's the thing that is printed and distributed all over um, and begins to found the basis of a national narrative. So, you know, there are scholars of nationalism uh, and they have lots of theories about what makes a nation a nation. But one of the things that comes up frequently in these conversations is part of nationhood is building a national narrative. Part of building a national narrative is erasing what doesn't fit with it. Um, and this is part of what's going on in the 1820s. Yeah, it's an interesting time because in 1820, when Webster gives that speech, we're a brand new nation. Many of the states really have nothing to do with one another culturally or in terms of the economy or anything else that would bind them, except Britain came back and annoyed us by burning down the White House during the War of 1812. But other than that, we're just a little more than 40 years away from a civil war. So this idea of anything that could bind this disparate group of people that have combined into something called the United States of America becomes very important, really almost essential to creating a nation. That's right. Yeah. And you you also see that this begins to spread through schools and textbooks um, take off during this period. You have competitions for the next great uh, national textbook to send through all the schools. 
And many of the writers, uh, partly because of the culture of the Puritans and their legacy, many of the writers come from New England. And so many of the writers begin the story of America and American greatness in the Pilgrims. So I guess, look, you know, nobody's perfect. And we look back from things we believe today and things we've come around to and all of that because we want to connect our culture today with the way things were then. But do the pilgrims live up to the reputation of the beginning of democracy and religious freedom? They had slaves. I mean, the pilgrims who sat down with the Native Americans at their first Thanksgiving then sold some of those same people into slavery. So how do we look at them now? So, yeah, it's complicated. And you know, basically what I try to do is push against whatever the the sort of dominant narrative is that's being brought to me in a class. So in some scenarios, what you'll have is people who tend to want to praise the pilgrims as the founders of all things, liberty of conscience, religious liberty, democratic liberty, and so on. And then you have to say, you know, you got to think about this and you got to look at what they were doing. You also have folks these days who come and say, well, the Puritans and pilgrims were nothing but evil machinations that were just trying to take land. They were greedy, filthy people that were just murderous and genocidal. And then you have to ask yourselves, well, what kinds of institutions did they actually build that had a kind of legacy and that did, in fact, uh, influence the way that American culture took shape and American governance much later? And they did do things like invent a bicameral legislature, uh, try to limit the power of the governor, run elections, extend the suffrage and the vote. I mean, they did do quite a few of these things. And so basically my my model as a teacher, I always tell my students this, you, look, you won't know what my own politics are, uh, but you'll think they're the opposite of yours because whatever you push uh, me towards, I'm going to push against and offer you what are, what are you not thinking about here and what do you need to wrestle with? But this is good. This is what good teaching is. <laughs> well, I try anyway. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like I'm ready to fly to St. Louis and sign up for a class. Well, we've learned a lot about how we think, not just about Puritans and pilgrims in 1620, but how and why we think of ourselves a certain way today. And of course, the extra added trivia of what kept a lot of people in the stocks in Massachusetts in the 1600s. <laughs> That's right. Thank you so much for being with us. Abram Van Engen is professor of English as well as religion and politics at Washington University in St. Louis. He has written and lectured a good deal about the Puritans of the 1600s. Abram, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We've got more of the Thanksgiving special just ahead from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Every year on these Thanksgiving specials, we look back at what we call the first Thanksgiving to who took part, why they took part, what it may have actually been like, and what might be true and what reduced centuries later to myth, dinner, decorations, and a Bugs Bunny Elmer Fudd cartoon might be some actual history to tell us about what was one in a long series of moments that shaped the fate of both European and indigenous societies. And to help us, here's Paula Peters, a member of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe that was present at this day that is celebrated, or not so much in some areas. Tell me what life would have been like for the Wampanoags before the pilgrims landed. Well, it's really important that you ask that question in that way, because I think so much of what uh, is known about 
the Wampanoag um, is associated with the Thanksgiving myth. And there's, there is an, a very important critical backstory to the Wampanoag people. Our people have been here for more than 12,000 years. And there is archeological evidence that supports that. Um, and there's also a lot that's written about um, the Wampanoag and our encounters with European and English traders and, and explorers who had come to this region prior to their being the Mayflower. And um, that's, that's an important backstory for so many reasons. Well, let's get into some of that, because the Pilgrims were not the first Europeans who had shown up. The tribe had been facing European encroachment since 1524, and uh, it's it's a troubled relationship. Yeah, absolutely it was. Um, there had been explorers who had been coming to this region, as, as you've mentioned, and, and as is true, um, for almost 100 years or more before the Mayflower actually arrived. And some of those encounters were uh, mutually beneficial. Um, there was trading that took place that was mutually beneficial. The, the European traders loved getting um, beaver skins and trading for items made of metal that the, the indigenous people could not have gotten. Things like uh, glass beads and um, coats and, and, and uh, cloth um, were things that they would commonly trade for. But that trading um, led to some, some more nefarious activities, at least on the part of, of some of these captains on some of these ships who uh, saw that there was an intrinsic value in bringing actual human beings back with them. Um, and for a number of reasons, they were, uh, they were taken to be sold into slavery. They were taken um, as as a curiosity um, to be brought back to uh, Europe and to England and, and were literally showed off uh, like a circus act as a curiosity. There's a history here uh, between settlers and explorers and the, the Wampanoag tribe. Uh, the relationship, as you said, starts off okay. The tribe had beaver pelts to sell. The Europeans, led by Captain Thomas Hunt, uh, invited a number of men uh, to come aboard and select things that they wanted in trade. But those people are then double-crossed. They are sold as slaves in Spain. And there's a group of friars that save one man, known as Squanto or Desquantum. He comes back later to teach the pilgrims how to survive, which you think, why? Since since he had been taken in, in slavery, everyone but him that was taken to Spain just disappears into the slave trade. So it's interesting that the Thanksgiving dinner happens at all because there's a history about, as you said, almost a century of there being no reason to trust these settlers. Yeah, absolutely. And it is true that uh, that Squanto was one of 20 men who was stolen from the village of Patuxet. And that's an important uh, thing to remember, that he was from Patuxet. He was taken by Thomas Hunt, sold uh, into slavery, and or perhaps he was one of those who was rescued by the friars. Uh, but ultimately, he ended up living in England for about five or more years until he was able to convince um, some explorers to bring him back, um, probably as as a guide. Um, the the other important thing to point out about Squanto and the village of Patuxet and and that that backstory that I'm telling you about is that. Patuxet was one of many coastal villages from the coast of Maine all the way to the tip of Cape Cod that was inundated with uh, 
a horrible and devastating plague, which ultimately became known as the Great Dying, wherein indigenous people who had absolutely no immunity to European sicknesses or diseases were quickly succumbing to a, a disease that we have no idea what it was. It could have been smallpox or it could have been yellow, yellow fever. Uh, they're not really sure what it was, but it wiped out these people very, very quickly. They died um, not even being able to to bury their dead. So by the time Squanto returns, his entire village is wiped out. He comes to Patuxet and it is literally a ghost town. There's a lot more to find out about the Native American's history of Thanksgiving, and we will continue our conversation with Paula Peters of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe coming up on the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. We're back with more of the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we've been talking with Paula Peters of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, which was the group of Native Americans who were there at that first Thanksgiving dinner about their perspective on this holiday. How much of what we picture of the first Thanksgiving dinner is based on, frankly, any kind of reality? Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that that comes of uh, Thanksgiving is is this um, this myth that there was a, a, a dinner that that it had been planned that they invited the Wampanoag to to come and feast with them and celebrate with them, which is absolutely not the truth. Um, that all comes from one paragraph that is written about that event. Um, and it really, it, it's a small paragraph, but again, it tells us a lot. It tells us that on that day, as they were, they were celebrating um, their harvest, they also had a tradition of blasting off their muskets, which was something that their, their militia did. And um, that was something that was not heard very often, if you can imagine. I mean, we had no guns here. Uh, so it would be... Uh, something that that was very uh, disturbing, and it was very disturbing. And so the the Wampanoag that approached the village on that day had come uh, because they had uh, perceived a threat uh, from these guns and had come uh, in in mass. They came a hundred men strong with Usimiquin, the Massasoit, and they were all armed with their bows and arrows. So I would love to know if there were more paragraphs written about that. I would love to know what it is that Governor Bradford said to get those warriors to back down. It's so interesting. We have this national holiday that we think we know the story behind. It's based on one paragraph that tells us very little. And and we really don't know the full history behind how that dinner came to be, how it even went, and uh, what the aftermath, what the day after was like. Right. Well, there wasn't really a day after. There was a day, two days, three days for uh, it, they they did agree to stay and join them for the feast, which um, I think may have assuaged the, the Wampanoag men uh, to put down their their weapons because they were being offered food. Um, saying, no, we're not, you know, we're not threatening you with these these muskets. We we're just, you know, we're just fooling around. That was a joke. Uh, but you can stay and have have something to eat. And as it was the custom of the Wampanoag to um, to share in in their uh, 
uh, their bounty. They went out and they hunted, which they were very good hunters, and they hunted for some deer. They hunted for some fowl. They did talk about that, that there is a mention of fowl, but there's no mention of whether or not it was turkey. We have no idea if there was a turkey on the table. Uh, we have no idea if there was cranberry sauce on the table. Uh, we have no idea if there was a cornucopia. Um, but all of these things now represent that day or those days in which the uh, the Wampanoag men were convinced to put down their weapons and, and not wipe out or annihilate the village after they had blasted off their muskets. The fact that they had any kind of communication at all about about food, about putting down weapons, about um, about alliances and things like this is in its own way remarkable. Well, yeah, um, it is, but also it, it's, it's explained um, or it should be explained, which is, uh, and circling back to my original point that the backstory is that important, um, that it should be explained that, that um, they did learn uh, some English, whether it be through encounters with um, explorers and fishermen and, and traders or in those really unfortunate encounters where they were actually taken and, and brought away as kidnap victims. Yes. And, and not to make light of, of any of this, but you know, when Squanto comes back and after, after being taken and, and learns English and comes back and decides to try and help the pilgrims, you know, I keep thinking of, there's a science fiction story called to serve man about, uh, space aliens come and they they do all these great things for people and people think, oh, they're our friends and somebody and they have this book to serve man, which they think is about humanitarian impulses. And it's actually about how to cook and eat people. And they're taking the earthlings away, you know, for for slavery and to be eaten. So Squanto comes back. He knows that they're taking his people to put into slavery. And I would, you know, I, I wonder why he didn't go you know, don't talk to these people. Don't have anything to do with these people. Chase them off the land. You know, get rid of them at any cost. Yeah. Uh, well, there's there's more to that. So there's so much more to his story. Um, and he he did come back. As I said, he came back as as a man without a country. And because he had um, proven alliances to his captors to to the degree that um, he actually was not trusted by the Wampanoag once he had come back. And that's why he was kept really as a servant to Usamequan until the pilgrims arrived, until uh, they made the alliance. So his, uh, his loyalties were, um, were sketchy to say the least. So looking back, and there's, there's so much to tell and unfortunately so little time for us to tell it all. But so here is this holiday with these decorations and this myth that refuses to die and the story that some people are anxious to tell, but many other people are anxious not to hear. And for people such as yourself, Paula, who are Mashpee Wampanoag, and you, you know the background, you know the history of this story, and you see, you know, the parades and the turkeys and the people who are dressed as Native Americans and, and, and all that goes with our modern thing of Thanksgiving, which of course has many things that have nothing to do with any of this. You know, for many people, it's just a, a thing to have the family over for, for some good food. And there's no telling of the history of this at all. But for many people, there is the telling of the story that has nothing to do with the beginning of a tragic history 
um, for for the people who lived here for thousands of years. And this makes people, not just the Wampanoags, but you know, all indigenous people, their reaction to all of this is what? Our reaction to it is, is that, um, well, for one thing, um, it's a lot of bunk, but it provides us with a platform for telling the truth, for bringing out the real story. Because in spite of what's been told for hundreds of years, people are interested in knowing the whole story and knowing the truth, which is why I'm so glad to have been spending the last couple of years working so closely with the Smithsonian on this uh, uh, curriculum, which tells the story from the Wampanoag perspective and it's just, it's still in production, but um, it is definitely something that we all are looking forward to because it's going to teach this story at a very critical uh, time in the educational life of students, you know, for, for young students to learn about it while they're still young. As a final thought, it's it's such a double-edged sword. On the one hand, the holiday has extended myths about those early relationships and what happens to indigenous peoples in the United States. On the other hand, it creates this opening that otherwise might not exist for people to go, well, what was the story? And to learn about the history of this continent in, in a way that might not have otherwise piqued their interest. Paula Peters, a member of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us. We've looked at Thanksgiving on this special from the history of the pilgrims, from Native Americans. There's more to learn about the complicated true story and how to teach that. Nichelle Garcia joins us now about that effort from the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. Thanksgiving remains the most requested topic um, from educators and the general public who visit the National Museum of the American Indian um, when they're coming to the museum or they're searching our website. Uh, many of whom are looking for a more accurate history, and uh, for you know, for most Americans, this this myth of the first Thanksgiving has become this ingrained national story. Um, but you know, it's incomplete. It's inaccurate. It's there's so much more to it that hasn't been told, and so. Um, and when you think about the purpose of national stories, that really begins in the early elementary grades. Uh, if the whole point is to bring us together to understand our shared history, to give us common ground, then we need to tell a better story. And that includes uh, all the historical context and the Wampanoag voice and perspective. And so as a Smithsonian institution with a trusted national and international platform, we have not only the opportunity, but a responsibility to facilitate this effort. Uh, we reached out to Paula Peters. Uh, she and her son, Stephen Peters, through their media production company, Smoke Signals, have done a lot of amazing work to do, tell the Wampanoag story. And so, it, yes, it's been such an honor for me to build a relationship with Paula, Steve, and Jen Peters at Smoke Signals. 
um, they've been our main contact um, with the Wampanoag cultural experts and community members. They've provided guidance and consult consultation at every level of the lesson development and have licensed some of their images and production work to be featured within this lesson. Um, it's going to be um, a new lesson that we're going to be providing for grades three through five. So again, retelling this story, this more complete history and in the elementary grade levels where this myth, you know, first emerges for, for young learners. And so really countering that at those early grades. Um, but in doing so in a way that's that's appropriate for the young students, giving them a more multi, multiple perspective um, and age-appropriate historical detail to tell this more complete story. Um, with our Native Knowledge 360 lessons, we always want students and teachers to connect more informed histories with Native communities today. So for the Thanksgiving lesson, um, Smoke Signals produced a short video about Cranberry Day, uh, a traditional harvest festival the Wampanoag have celebrated for thousands of years and continue to do so today. Uh, so students will get a glimpse of that and hear directly from Wampanoag community members sharing about why this tradition is so important, but most importantly that harvest festivals carry a different meaning for them than what's become known as uh, the Thanksgiving holiday for most Americans. And we're hoping, you know, because this is such a, a popular topic, you know, even though this lesson is going to be for grades three through five, that this is a resource that will be um, accessible for anyone who are looking for that more complete history. Well, we'll be interested to see all this. Nichelle Garcia from the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. <laughs> 